welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 110th episode, our guest is Jonathan Wiseman. Jonathan Wiseman is Deputy Washington Editor of the New York Times. He's the author of the novel, Number 4, Imperial Lane, which was a Chautauqua Prize finalist, Amazon Best Book of the Month, and Great Group Reads Pick at the Women's National Book Association. His latest book is Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump. He has reported for The Baltimore Sun, The Washington Post, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and others. He is the father of two teenage daughters and lives with fellow writer Jennifer Steinhauer in Washington, D.C. And now on to the show. I'm Jonathan Weissman. I'm the Deputy Washington Editor of the New York Times, and I've written a book called Semitism, Being Jewish in America in the Age of Trump. Cool. Yeah, and I uh, just finished your book a few days ago. I really enjoyed it. Um, and uh, if you could explain what your uh, relationship with Judaism was before the events with which preceded the writing of this book occurred. Um, from what I understand in your writing, you weren't particularly religious in any real sense uh, before this all happened. Happened, right. Well, I was raised in Atlanta mm-hmm. um, in a uh, you know modestly Jewish household. I was certainly uh, identified Jewish, and mm-hmm. I was bar mitzvahed, and I uh, went to religious school. But honestly, uh, in my adult life, I wasn't uh, particularly Jewish oriented mm-hmm. um, and not particularly religious, which was one of the crazy things about what happened to me because uh, somehow I was identified by the neo-Nazi alt-right movement as Mm -hmm. some uh, avatar of Judaism in in America. Right, right. Um, And I do think one thing that is interesting about Judaism itself is that you can be culturally Jewish and you don't have to be religious. It's it's kind of a race and a religion, and that's different from other religions and races because they kind of are separate in that way. Is that that right? Right. There is a sense of Judaism as a culture, Mm -hmm. as a people, um, and that, you know, it's traditionally passed on matrilineally, so if your mother is Jewish, you are born Jewish, mm-hmm. you're, you're Jewish. That's right. all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, isn't a, there aren't a lot of uh, hoops to jump through if you have the golden ticket of a, of a Jewish mother. Right, right. Well, and that's uh, good that you brought that up, because one of my good friends, Brian, is Jewish, and he's telling me that he was experiencing some amount of prejudice from other uh, Jewish people, because actually it's the reverse for him. His father is Jewish and his mother is not and I know like you said that's a matriarchal thing so and that's something you've run into I guess in, in your life right that, that yeah, some people it, like it is, it yeah. is uh, obviously my chill I, I have two daughters mm-hmm. um, and uh, their mother is not Jewish mm-hmm. and they weren't raised particularly Jewish okay. uh, at all um, huh. but uh, one of them uh, my younger one is 15 she identifies very Jewish and yes technically in fact she is uh, if you know if she went to Israel for instance uh, the Israelis would not identify her as Jewish she huh. would not be considered Jewish um, and, but she considers herself Jewish and I think that in at least uh, kind of liberal Traditions of, of the United States, mm-hmm. um, and especially in the in in the you know, less rigid um, uh, reform synagogue movement, um, you know they'll take we'll take anybody. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a little more open, right? Um, but uh, are there any other major religions that you can think of that could also be classified that way? Because I was talking about this with my wife, and she was a religious studies major in college, and, and I was saying I thought almost Mormonism could seemingly fall into that category because it seems like there was that you know bottleneck where they were this kind of tribe of people that, that were off in the desert, a different desert, of course, but uh, it's, it's kind of one point in history, and it kind of springs from that, and I see some common characteristics, uh, but she said that analogy really doesn't work because Jews aren't evangelical in any way. Um, what, what's your take yeah, on I all mean, that? The thing is, remember, it goes back to the sense of the 12 tribes of Judah, right? Uh-huh. Um, I mean, that, that in some ways, you know, through the, through the millennia, um, Jewish blood has obviously mingled with all sorts of blood, um, but there is at least the notion um, that we all go back mm-hmm. to this small group of uh, tribes in what is now Israel and and, and the Middle East, um, and that we were scattered to the winds after after uh, various conquerors of uh, of Judea and Samaria. So mm-hmm. it's a little. It is different. I mean, I. In some ways, no. In some ways, I, I can't really figure out any any religion like this because the difference between Judaism and Mormonism, or say, or or, or Islam, mm-hmm. is that Mormonism, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and certainly Islam, believes in the active spreading of the religion. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to take over, you know, take sure. over as many as Mormons as they could be, or, right. um, and so. The community of like of Muslims called the Ummah, um, mm-hmm. that's an ever expanding community. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas uh, the Jewish people, um, they we are not particularly aggressive in proselytizing. <laughs> in fact, we're very not. If you if you can convert to Judaism, certainly, right. but Jews do not go out and tr- seek to convert you. Right. Um, so it's it's a much tighter knit community. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, you kind of alluded to this a minute ago, but I guess this probably be a good time to explain uh, kind of what happened to you and, and what led to the writing of this book. You posted an article, was it before Trump was elected or after? It was shortly during after? the primary. Okay. Um, it was in May of 2016. Mm-hmm. And I'm an editor. I wasn't writing at the time. I've used to, I, for mo- most of my career, I was a writer, but mm-hmm. I'm an editor now. Um, and actually, it was in the Washington Post. There was a column um, by a guy named Robert Kagan, a, a conservative scholar, actually, at and the Brookings Institution um, called This is How Fascism Comes to America. Mm-hmm. And I took a little bit of it um, and uh, took a clip of it and, and put it on the uh, on the internet, on Twitter, and sent it out into the world. Mm-hmm. And I got a strange note back um, that said, uh, hello, Weissman. That's it. It was from Cyber Trump, um, and Weissman was in three, par- three parentheses. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I had never seen that notation, the three parentheses, I had a feeling that it had something to do with the Jewishness of my name, that Weissman is a Jewish-sounding name. Um, and I said, care to explain? And he sent back another tweet that said, what ho the vaunted Ashkenazi intelligence, it's a dog whistle fool, I'm belling the cat for my fellow Goyim. And afterward, like almost immediately, there was just this onslaught of Twitter messages that were like the basest, ugliest forms of anti-Semitism you could imagine. Um, You know, not just 
obviously Jewish stereotypes, but me uh, with my uh, you know, uh, with my head superimposed on uh, a figure who's kneeling down and about to get his head blown off by a Nazi, or me in a gas chamber with Trump about to throw the switch and him in a in a Nazi uniform, um, you know, pictures of my face superimposed on Holocaust uh, victims, such and such and such. It just went on and on and on. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, what was amazing about it is how organized it was. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is kind of like a, a tactic that, that you go into, into the book, and you talk about Gamergate, and I know you interviewed Zoe Quinn, and yeah. uh, it almost seems like Gamergate was a training ground for kind of what came next as far as like the 2016 election and kind of what happened with you. Um, tell a little bit about her story and, and kind of what you learned from her. Well, what's interesting is that Gamergate in some ways was a dry run for the alt-right. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to refresh your listeners uh, <laughs> um, on this. Now, there was a small group of women video game designers. Uh, they were designing, like, feminist video games. Um, games that were designed to appeal to women, uh, not men, and there was a, and there were a lot of gamers kind of living in their basement uh, on 4chan and 8chan and, and talking about video games, and they decided that, that they hated these women they wanted to destroy them. Um, and they they learn how to weaponize the internet through through Gamergate. They learn how to dox people or SWAT people or um, just, or, or just try to ruin their lives by just pounding them um, with messages, emails, texts, putting out I- intimate details of their lives, some of them true, many of them false, just making their lives miserable. Um, and what, the reason that Gamergate was so important to the, the kind of the neo-Nazi alt-right was that before Gamergate, and Gamergate was around 2012, I think, 2011, 2012, um, before Gamergate, all of these guys, the neo-Nazis and the alt-right, were living in their own websites. They had, you know, the Daily Stormer or Stormfront or like the National Policy Institute. Um, they, they, they talked to each other. But what they saw with Gamergate was that if you got your message out through more accessible channels, like 4chan and 8chan and to the chat rooms in, in, in YouTube, um, or Reddit, then you could uh, that people would would see your message that weren't part of your uh, your team, and they would sign on, um, and they and they also learned that whoa, we could really di- we we don't just have to organize with the internet, we could actually use the internet as a weapon, uh, and I think that that was a really important uh, moment for the alt right movement. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and you mentioned this uh, when you were explaining what happened to you. But the pre- three parentheses thing was that a, that was a Google plugin, right? That allowed them to yeah. search well, by that. I'll, Is that? Yeah, I'll quickly explain. The, yeah. there, nobody knew. It was called the coincidence indicator. Mm. That it was such a such a innocuous, uh, name. innocuous <laughs> name that Google didn't even notice. Uh-huh. Didn't know what it was on. They, it was a Google plugin. You could download it, and you know, on Google, if you actually do a Google search, Google. Does does not 
ordinarily pick up punctuation marks. But if you download the coincidence indicator, you could specifically look for these three parentheses. Um, and then that would tell you, as a neo-Nazi, <laughs> as a follower of the alt-right, mm-hmm. who was being targeted. And generally, it was uh, Andrew Anglin, at mm-hmm. the uh, the editor of the Daily Stormer, that was deciding, you know, which Jewish, mostly Jewish journalists, which Jewish journalists to target. And once they belled the cat with the three parentheses, then... Uh, anyone who, who was a follower of Andrew Anglin could then mm-hmm. go and search out uh, the, the the latest mark. Mm-hmm. Right, and then a, th- a similar thing happened to you mentioned this in the book was that Julia Yaffe also did a thing on um, Melania Trump, and then that kind of the storm descended upon her as well after that. Right. Yeah. Uh, actually, quite a few. There were quite a few. I, I, ironically, one of the one of the most attacked journalist was Ben Shapiro. Who was a ardent conservative, right. but Ben Shapiro was had been on Breitbart, mm-hmm. and um, when Breitbart kind of took a turn to, toward anti-Semitism, he quit Breitbart, and I think he got the attacks uh, that that the apostates get. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, he was a backslider, well, they, so he was really yeah. targeted. They hate that worst of all, right? <laughs> so Julia Yaffe, uh, at that time uh, during the campaign, was a uh, a freelance journalist, and she had written a profile of Melania Trump for GQ, mm-hmm. in which she went into she went back to Slovenia uh, and found a long lost um, half brother of Melania, and Melania declared that uh, this that this was too intrusive. She did not like this, and then Andrew Anglin at the Daily Stormer said that Princess Melania did not like this. He belled a Julia Yaffe and Julia Yaffe was just deluge with you know, threats, death threats, rape threats, the you know, the worst kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, par- and, and remember, when Julia Yaffe, um, when all this was happening to Julia Yaffe, Melania was asked by a different women's magazine, um, what do you think about what's happening to to, to Julia Yaffe? She said, well, she provoked it. So, no, they weren't exactly trying to to, to tamp this down. Mm-mm. Right, right. Um, but as far as Google goes, they did remove that plugin eventually once it was kind of found what was going on, right? That's not a thing yes, that happens they, anymore, they right? They did. They did, but I'm telling you, if you, if you go on to Google right now and, uh, and, 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 and look at it, uh-huh. you'll find it. Coincidence, sure. The Coincidence Indicator now just has its own own website, oh, coincidenceindicator.com, okay. I think. Gotcha. So, uh, still out there. Okay. still out there. Uh, but you uh, took an interesting tactic when this uh, first started happening. You you started retweeting people to kind of show, you know, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm seeing in my mentions. Um, it seems like you kind of came to the conclusion that that was counterproductive. Is that right? I think it was. Now, look, the, I thought it was very important that people out there in the world saw the kind of hatred that was being stirred up by the by the Trump campaign. Um, remember, most of these people, they went by things like Cyber Trump. Um, they, they were, their, their avatars were Trumpy. They, they, they were sending out Trump, pro-Trump messages. 
Um, and I and I thought it was important to, to for people to realize that a lot of hatred and bigotry was being stirred up by the 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. So, and I I, I I I don't regret having done that, but I also did know that you know, hey, somebody who has a hundred Twitter Twitter follows being being retweeted by somebody who has sixty thousand Twitter mm-hmm. followers, you're amplifying that guy's message a lot, um, and that guy is gonna like that. He wants. He sent you that because he wanted you to see it, and he doesn't mind that other people are seeing it. So, mm-hmm. in a sense, I think that my effort to to get the message out that this was going on uh, kind of egged on more attacks uh, and um, got their message out to a to a broader audience. It also did give a lot of people a sense of what happened. And in fact. Twitter, uh, in the end, um, responded partly because an editor at the New York Times was one of the victims. Mm. So, you know, it was not all bad. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It seems like they've taken a little bit of action as far as trying to tamp down on some of these. How do you think Twitter and and them have uh, responded in in the months and years since this has all started here? You know, what's funny about it is that when Twitter first, when this first started happening, Twitter was exceptionally um, reluctant to do anything. I didn't really understand it because, you know, people talk about this as a free speech issue, but Mm. Twitter and Facebook and most most social media platforms, first of all, they're they're private companies. Mm -hmm. They're not governed by the same rules um, that uh, you know, that, are, that govern free speech on the public square. Um, they get to set the terms of speech, and they do, because when we sign up, we click on, I agree with your terms of service. And even if you didn't read the terms of service, you still clicked on the agree button, and, that agree, and, the, and by agreeing, you said, I will not use this platform to attack people based on race, color, ethnic origin, or religion. Um, and uh, so, you know, it is... It, it is not a an infringement of your rights if you agreed not to do it. Uh, and at first, I would send the most egregious attacks on me to Twitter and say, hey, you know, well, this guy is obviously breaking your rules. And Twitter would come back and say, we see no violation of mm-hmm. service. And even if they did see a violation, they might X out that account, and then that same person just opens an account right. with a slightly different name, because mm-hmm. you know you can, use, uh, cause you can be anonymous on Twitter. Mm-hmm. They didn't do much of a good job at all, and they didn't seem to care. But then when it got really bad, when, a, when, this, was, when this was starting to get a lot of publicity, they said, we're going to shut it down. And they've done a lot to shut it down. Mm-hmm. And I do not get attacked the way I used to. I and trust me, I know that they're still out there. Uh-huh. But Twitter now, Twitter now is doing a good job. They've probably created the algorithms to sweep through and look for the racist language, racist imagery, anti-Semitic imagery, um, and and tamp it down. So no question, they can do it. Mm-hmm. Now I go onto places like 4chan and 8chan to see what's going on. <laughs> there there are no rules there. Sure, absolutely, still the wild west over there. So exactly. Um, well, I guess if you're a world we- world leader, you can say what you want, right? Because that's their new yeah. policy. So right. <laughs> all they got to do is get themselves Trump, elected. Some people have said Trump, many of Trump's tweets do violate their terms of service, but obviously. 
obviously Trump is not going to Sure. No, absolutely not. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I noticed when you say the word alt-right, and I agree with you, it's 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 a hard word for me to say in my mouth because we already had these uh, terms for these people. Um, what do you think about that term alt-right, and, and how, how should we talk about people like that? Because uh, it's it's been a controversy. It's interesting that you ask that. I mean, the alt-right is, is a term that they gave themselves. Right. I mean, Richard Spencer, one of the leaders of the alt-right, coined the phrase. And remember, and it goes way back. Um, it was coined around 2007, 2008, because the, because this, this was a group of people who became very disenchanted with the Bush era. Um, they did not like Bush's foreign policy interventionism. They didn't like the war in Iraq. They didn't, and they were very upset about the collapse, obviously, of the financial system in 2000, 2008. Mm-hmm. And all right meant alternative right, the idea that we're going to look for a new kind of conservatism, mm-hmm. and they hit on uh, kind of white nationalism. It's mm-hmm. really a white nationalist movement. So you're right. Um, the term all right is kind of whitewashing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we call them white racists, white nationalists, uh, neo-Nazis, that would be more, uh, it would be more accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, we kind of tend to fall into the nomenclature that they, sure. that they give themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know there's been also kind of an ongoing controversy in, in journalism in general as, as to how to cover these people. And, and I can kind of see both sides of it. And obviously you had to write about these people in your book, um, but you know, on the one end, it's like we want to, you you know, know know your uh, the people that are you know want you in an oven or whatever. But on the other end, you don't want to you know whitewash or, or give a soft focus Barbara Walters, you know, Nazis just like us, you know. So, um, how did you? I guess when you were going to your book, um, especially, how did you go about writing about these people in a way that was both fair but also not kind of you know glossing over things that need to be kind of brought into focus here. I don't think I glossed over anything. Oh no, I, I'm not um, saying you did. Absolutely, but I'm no, saying no, no. that's happened I mean, in I, journalism. Look, so. you know, you you thing is that the, the thing about them is that they're not. They don't try to hide the fundamental bigotry and hatred in their ideology. Um, I mean, you know, there's a Andrew Anglin wrote uh, on the Daily Stormer wrote a guide to the alt right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still available. You can go on there right now, and it's no, it's very open. Um, and 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 some of the attacks that they have lev- launched are so uh, so brazen that just talking about what happened, for instance. To the Jews of Whitefish, Montana. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. Whitefish, Whitefish, Montana is a, a, a very small town outside of Glacier National Park. Had a very small Jewish community in the, in the greater Whitefish area. There are about a hundred Jews, um, and one of those Jews happened to be a uh, realtor. Um, uh, who was f- semi-friendly with Richard Spencer's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Spencer's mother, uh, at that time, um, uh, there was there was movement afoot in Whitefish, which had kind of a, a liberal, crunchy, green population. Um, they, when they found out that Richard Spencer was raised in Whitefish and that her, his mother still lived there, they... They were talking about organizing protests and boycotts of 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 uh, Mrs. Spencer, um, mm-hmm. and 
um, you know, in a in a kind of a casual way, Tanya Tanya Gersh, um, the the realtor, the Jewish realtor, said suggested, you know, you don't need this. Maybe you should sell your building um, and, and and just you know get away. And uh, Tanya, and then Richard Spencer's mother accused her of trying to drive her out of out of town. And the response was um, to organize a mass attack on every Jew in the greater Whitefish area to target an entire community. Mm. And it was so ugly and so out there. Um, and you know, the, the, the local rabbi, the synagogue, had to get armed guards. And it was, you know, just spelling it out uh, gives you a good sense of the, of the willingness uh, of the the aficionados of the alt right mm-hmm. um, to go after real people, and it's not because so it's not just an internet phenomenon. It's it, it, it could be a very destructive force. Right. Well, I think that was the big thing about Charlottesville is like you pointed out in the book. It's like they're coming out of the you know online and into the real world or whatever. This isn't just online trolling. This is you know for real. Like and things are really happening in the real world. So that's what that's the difference now that I see. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, I had actually, as I was, I had almost finished writing the book um, at the time uh, of Charlottesville, and while I was writing it, there was uh, an, a follower of what he called the Alt Reich um, in German. Alt, the Alt Reich had come uh, come upon uh, a young African American student uh, outside the University of Maryland, um, and uh, asked him to step aside from the sidewalk, and he didn't step aside, and and the follower of the Alt Reich stabbed him to death. Mm. Right, right there on the streets of College Park, Maryland, mm. uh, and then there was a, a, a probably more famous episode uh, where uh, a guy from the alt right um, was screaming at these two young teenage girls in their hijabs on the on the light rail in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Two men stood up to him and started yelling at him, and he turned and stabbed them to death. Two grown men on broad daylight on the light rail in Portland, Oregon. So mm-hmm. the notion that this, this is a harmless movement on the internet that we could just ignore, um, I think is uh, belied by uh, the blood on the ground these days. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely, yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I, I really appreciate that you uh, touched on in your book was kind of the uh, sick uh, support that some super right-wing evangelicals have for uh, Israel and, and kind of uh, Zionism, and, and it's, it's kind of a, a, always been a weird thing to me because it's so obvious what's happening is that they just, I mean, as you describe in the book, they just want to get the Jews into Israel to convert them to Christianity to bring on the apocalypse. So it's kind of like a pretty well, sick not relationship. Not necessarily to convert them to Christianity. Oh, no, they don't have according to? to oh. According to Revelations, no, okay. there's, once there is, going, there is going to be an ingathering of the Jews back to back uh-huh. to the Jewish homeland, the Israel, and then once that happens, uh, Jesus will return, there will be a the great battle between good and evil, and mm-hmm. everyone who is not uh, who is you know not saved will will die and sweep be swept to hell. Mm. And they de- it, what happens what happens to the Jews is immaterial. <laughs> they just, right, they have one role to play, and that role is to gather, 
to gather to the, this, this right. plot of land on the uh, eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Right. Well, it, it, yeah, it seems like for now it seems okay, but if you play this out all the way to the end, it doesn't seem like such a great deal. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah, no, um, no. Yeah. But it's a, it's a pretty much a temporary marriage of convenience, right? Because it serves the needs of people that are Zionists in the moment, and it serves the needs of the other side, too, for, you know, the long term, I guess. But Yeah, I, and I think that and I think that the conservative government of Israel under Netanyahu, mm-hmm. they understand it's – they, well, of course, they – Netanyahu does not believe that the ingathering of Jews will herald the second coming and the end of the world. Well, sure, yeah. They, so it's not it's – not so they don't think it's a marriage – a temporary marriage of convenience. It's a permanent marriage of right, convenience. Right, because the other part will never come to pass. Right? The other part will never yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but uh, since you've been exploring, you know, the topic of Judaism professionally, and that you've obviously been thinking about it a lot, uh, what effect on your personal life has it had with your relationship with that, both I guess culturally and religiously? Well, I actually do believe. I mean, I have become more religious mm-hmm. in this in this in the process of this. I talk to a lot of a lot of people, a lot of Jews, and a lot of rabbis um, to talk about my experiences and how we combat the rise of anti-Semitism and bigotry more broadly. And I remember having this conversation. I was, uh, after I, I got divorced like four years ago now, um, right after I, my divorce, my younger daughter said, okay, now that now that you're on your own, I want to be, I, I want a Jewish education. I want to join a synagogue. I want to be bat mitzvahed. And we did. We joined a synagogue. We were a member of a synagogue just outside of Washington. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to a different rabbi, and a rabbi from a different synagogue um, named Dan Zemmel. Um, and we were talking about how you know, the tactics that should be used to confront the rise of of hatred in in this country. And you know, some people, some rabbis, have said the best thing to do is ignore it because that uh, by by confronting it or having these open fights with the with Richard Spencers of the world, we were just giving them what they wanted. Other people said no, we should fight. Other people had come up the and he he said look. Look to the Torah. Look to the Bible. Um, it, you know, it says where the where a Jew can where when a Jew confronts uh, confronts injustice, a Jew must stand up to injustice. So, uh, he, and he started talking about the religion of Judaism in such a way that I thought, you know, there are answers in my own religion. I just have to look for them. Um, and I I actually quit my other synagogue, joined his synagogue, uh, have been going to, to services a lot more, and I, 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 I've come to the conclusion that religion is very helpful to navigate the current, to, to navigate the world that we live in, mm-hmm. which is ever more complicated and ever more confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I, going back to Charlottesville a little bit as far in terms of anti-Semitism, I think that was a real wake-up call for people. Like, I think people kind of realized, you know, when they saw the images coming out of Charlottesville, they really realized that this is uh, not just, like you said, on online trolls uh, playing around. There's there's blood on the street, and there's there's people that are dying and getting hurt. Um, you know, we kind of end your book on a, on a hopeful note about people looking for solutions. So what do you see going forward as far as do you think things are getting better? Do you think people are waking up to this? Is this real? I think people are waking up. 
I think that there's a sense out there now uh, a, a searching for a response. And as I say in the book, I think if Jews stand up and scream anti-Semitism or blacks stand up and talk about racism or Muslims stand up and talk about Islamophobia, um, there is always going to be a sense of, well, you're just doing this for yourself. It's self-serving. You're exaggerating the problem. You're trying to draw attention to your own plight. And then there's a, another response, which is, you think you got it bad. We've got it worse. And then there's kind of one-upsmanship on the on the victimization mm-hmm. scale. And um, what you're seeing now more and more is our coalition forming between immigrant groups, Muslims, American Muslims, American Jews, uh, African Americans, to stand up together against bigotry and hatred, because I think that that is the way to confront it. Um, you know, you can't get up and get involved in uh, one-upsmanship, and you can't really deny the upswell of bigotry, uh, especially if you if you talk about it in its totality and not break it down to its components. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. And, and you also mentioned this in the book. It kind of goes back to the civil rights era of you know uh, the the black and Jewish uh, you know civil rights uh, like the Freedom Riders. A lot of, there was a lot mm-hmm. of uh, cooperation there. So I think when when people realize that there's kind of a, a universal threat, not specifically to just their group, I think that's when things actually move forward, you know what I mean? Right, um, and I talk about that in the book, too. mm -hmm. There was a a sense um, that 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 coalition of blacks and Jews in the civil rights movement was Mm -hmm. immutable, was always there, will always be there, but in fact, that's not true. I mean, Mm -hmm. African Americans and Jews uh, and Jewish Americans have sometimes been at odds, Mm -hmm. have sometimes gone their own way, and uh, that coalition in the civil rights era was a model for the future, a model for the present, but it wasn't, uh, but I mean, we have a long way to go to get back to that, uh, that tightness and that level of cooperation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, you mentioned your kids, and I also have two kids, but they're younger than yours, but um, what do you tell them about social media after you've gone through all this, um, going back to your kind of uh, Twitter mob experiences, um, you know, going forward, how, how do you tell them to deal with the online yeah, world? Yeah, so mine are 18 and 15, oh. and to be honest, they have a lot more to teach me than I have to teach them. <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny, because they, you know, I, I, my 18-year-old Helped, <laughs> helped edit my book. She wrote oh, it wow. all the time, and she had. And she she's a she actually is a very talented writer, but she also just has a, a sense of what's going on. She was actually the one who said she wanted me to see this guy PewDiePie. Mm. Um, uh, a PewDiePie is this YouTuber who has got these you know enormous tens of millions of followers all around the world. He's actually a Swedish guy, um, mm-hmm. but he does his little YouTube acts in, in uh, English. And PewDiePie, who has, as I said, millions and millions of followers, had done this thing where he was going, uh, he was talking about the new website Fiverr, where you could hire anyone basically for five bucks to do anything. And he kept talking about he had hired these guys in India to do something super secret for him. And he was all uh, excited about whether they were going to really do it. Well, could I really get them for five bucks to do this super secret thing I asked them to do? And he uploads a video that they have sent him to prove that they did what he was going to do. And what it was, these two Indian guys um, 
in a some kind of jungle somewhere in India, dancing around, and then they unveil this, they unfurl this banner, and it says, Death to All Jews. Mm. And PewDiePie acts all embarrassed. Oh my gosh, I can't believe they did this. Oh, I feel terrible. Oh, this is so bad. Oh, this is so bad. I can't believe I asked them to do this. And he makes a big show of contrition. But the amazing thing is that, A, he did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what made him think, I'm going to have these two Indian guys <laughs> unveil a banner that says death to all Jews. Mm-hmm. And I think about all of the young you know, boys, you know, the 12-year-old boys who love PewDiePie, who for the first time saw the phrase, death to all the Jews mm-hmm. uh, on that show. Um, right. As you, you asked me, what, what do I tell my kids? Well, my kids tell me things. And they, <laughs> say, and they say, this stuff is everywhere. Now, they're a little more, dis- I think they're a little more dismissive. Uh, you know, don't people don't take this stuff seriously. And I say, you, you know, you have no idea. Um, mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, the guy who shot up the school in uh, Parkland, Florida was mm-hmm. swimming in this stuff. He had a swastika on one of the magazines of his AR-15. Yep. The guy who just shot up the school in Santa Fe, Texas. Um, there's uh, evidence that he was swimming in this stuff from his Facebook mm-hmm. Facebook page. So I, I think that you know I think that young, especially young men at uh, ideologically vulnerable ages, if they're searching for some something to mm-hmm. give them to make them a part of something, mm-hmm. and they run into hatred mm-hmm. um, and this, uh, the whole notion that well the white there's a white genocide going mm-hmm. on that the whites are being crushed by uh, the Jews and the blacks and the Latino immigrants and the Muslims you know they want to join that that they're susceptible and I think that social media uh, you know is a wonderful tool to, for outreach but it is also a dangerous tool um, mm-hmm. for those who are vulnerable to uh, to this kind of ideology. Sure, absolutely. Well, it kind of reminds me of how they, how they talk about, you know, ISIS, you know, self-radicalizing people online, and how different is that really from what we're talking about right now with this uh, neo-Nazi stuff? It's, it's oh, pretty, pretty similar well, it's to me. Different, it, it's different in that in the United States, a hell of a lot more people have been killed by self-radicalized well, yes, uh, right-wing terrorists true. than by Muslim terrorists. Oh, absolutely. Sure. But it's like a, it's like a social contagion, though. It's like, it's like you said, we don't we don't take it seriously people that know better but there are people that that don't know better and do take it seriously yeah absolutely so um but uh you're usually writing you know straight journalism and and that's that's kind of what you're uh, you've been versed in and, and this you get to say a little bit more about your life and obviously your last book before this was a novel so how has it been kind of switching between formats here and these different uh things you've been doing you know it's a good question i mean the first time i wrote the first book i wrote that novel had been bouncing around my head for 20 years. A lot of it is based on on real life experience. Uh, And I'd always been a, a journalist, so I was taught to tell my story, what I'm trying to convey, as fast as possible. And in writing number four, Imperial Lane, I had to learn how to write slowly to 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 spin out a scene to describe it um to to understand that there are no limits here i'm not i don't have to finish this in in 12 inches of copy um and uh 
writing this book um, was much more of a journalistic exercise. In, it combined personal experience with actually going out, interviewing, talking to people. Uh, it, it, I wrote it very quickly because I wanted it to be in the in the uh, nation's bloodstream um, as fast as possible. In fact, uh, I finished this book right about at the time of Charlottesville. I had to pick it back up put Charlotte feed the Charlottesville experience throughout it mm-hmm. but this book was done by the fall of 2017 mm. and we rushed it that we, I I actually said well, can't we get the move up the publication date and they they just wouldn't do it mm. <laughs> right but, uh, I certainly you know by I guess at one point I was there was some concern that by the time this book came out maybe the alt right would be gone that all this bigotry would have ebbed and it certainly hasn't no absolutely not um, well, uh, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you'd want to get in there before we go here? Well, there's one thing I always like to say, which okay. is that I think that standing up to bigotry and standing up for um, you know, for democratic pluralism, mm-hmm. this is not supposed to be an ideological thing. There's you know, conservatives, liberals, Republicans. Democrats, there are certain lines that we used to not cross um, in our political discourse. Um, And I, I wish that we would get back to the point where it was not seen as a, a political statement or a bi- a statement of bias to say that we should we're all in this together and that this is a nation that does not believe in bigotry and hate but somehow this has become somehow a, a loaded phrase an anti-trump phrase i don't mean it to be an anti-trump phrase i mean it to to be the reconstruction of the norms of american society mhm Right, and a lot of things that are changing aren't things that are like laws. It's just things that we've expected to be the same and just aren't the same as we expected them to be. So Exactly. Um, but, exactly. Uh, well, uh, the last question I always ask before we go is what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, I was, when I was, I was driving to work this morning, uh, I was listening to Green Day's uh, latest album. So if you really want to know. But I, went, I, went, I, but I was also at Jack White's concert a couple of days ago. Oh, my God, it was fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, yeah? Cool. Yeah, I saw the White Stars back in the day. I haven't seen uh, any of the Uh, new stuff yet, but... Yeah, he's actually kind of got a harder edge than his White Stripes. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, great. Well, everyone should read your book. I really enjoyed it, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.